learned over the decades that, you know, you can't just stand up on a Sunday and preach, and very often preachers will just preach their favorite message over and over. But the church needs a balanced diet, and how many of you are believers in a balanced diet? My wife is too, so I eat my salad and veggies. But when we sit down as a, as a citywide church, we actually put together our sermon series diet up to two years in advance. Uh, okay, my wife's correcting me, up to a year in advance, and we know what we're going to preach in the next six months. But what we do look at is in a year to two year cycle, we want to make sure we cover at least one Old Testament book, one New Testament book. We want to cover things that are inspirational. We want to cover something that addresses the workplace, etc., which was our series that we had a number of guests here. And so today we're looking at our New Testament book, the book of Colossians. And I hope you're all excited about it. I uh, am more excited about it since I managed to do some studying on it. But Colossians is a fascinating book, and I'm going to give a little brief introductory history. We're going to spend four weeks camping around Colossians, why Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, why, you know, the, the uh, things that he said in that letter are so important for us today. It's considered one of the more relevant letters Paul wrote to the f issues facing the church today. And so we're going to dive right in and give you a quick introduction. Uh, we managed, we've actually had a number of archaeological discoveries. They discovered Paul's GPS um, in a cave some 250 years ago. And so I'm using a fair amount of Paul's GPS stuff here quickly. Aren't you blessed? And if you have a look at that, how many of you like maps? Okay, good. So for those three people, <laughs> well, where was Colossae? Colossae was at one stage a colossal city. It was a very important city. It was huge. It was the capital of Phrygia, where the Phrygians came from. Some of you feeling a little Phrygian this morning, I know, but there was a different kind of Phrygian, and they had this huge city. It was right on what was known as the Royal Persian Road that linked east to west, north to south, and they were right there on this major trade route. And not only trade came through there, but every philosophy, religion, thought that was going on around the world, so Eastern mysticism, which came from the east, believe it or not, uh, um, Western weirdism that came from the west, I mean, it was all coming through Colossae. Everything was passing there. And so Colossae was a little church with a lot of ideas. And we know that Paul, he traveled greatly all over Asia. He actually covered what was the known world. Even outside of what the Bible tells us, uh, historians will tell us that Paul reached right over. He got into Portugal. He got into Spain. And in fact, a couple of writings tell us he even got to Britain. Hey. Paul reached them English chaps. So I'm not sure they spoke with that accent back then. But he spent most of his time in Ephesus, arguably the biggest church that we have. And the, the church of the Ephesians was a very large, very significant place. Paul spent a number of years there doing training. And so we, we don't see Paul planting a whole lot of churches in these areas. But lots of people who came to his training in Ephesus were born again, new converts, trained, and were sent out. And so three of them went into what was known as the Lycus Valley and planted churches in Oropolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. And Laodicea being the church in Revelation, lukewarm church. And uh, this, by the time that Paul was uh, receiving this letter, or writing this letter and receiving Epaphras who had come to tell him about the church, this was a tiny little village because they moved the road somewhere else. 
And so Colossae, which was this colossal place, the Bible tells us this was the smallest, least significant place that Paul ever wrote to, and probably the smallest church of the whole lot. And yet Paul takes the time to write what is considered the best description of Jesus Christ to this little church. And Epaphras, who was trained and who was, uh, went out and planted this church, just shows you God doesn't need big apostles and highly trained people. He's just a guy who goes back home and plants a church. And we've got a few churches today just because people went back home and decided to start a church. Josie in Mahikeng. She just went home, started something. Now we have a great church. So I don't know, maybe that's for some of you who are going home somewhere. But there's this church, and because of all this major trade route and all the different religions and philosophies that are coming through, there's a whole lot of false teaching and heresy that is coming into the church that Epaphras comes to Paul and says, okay, Paul, we are battling. And Paul writes the letter to the Colossian church to address these false teachings. Now, would you agree, even after listening, Jack and Portia, you guys laid a great foundation. People believe a lot of weird stuff. Even people who claim to believe in Jesus. There are a whole lot of Christians who believe in a lot of weird stuff. Would you agree? There are a whole lot of sects and cults, and it's all about Jesus and, and Jesus and, and then, well, yes, we believe in Jesus, but. And uh, so when you have Jesus and or Jesus but, it's always going to be room for error. And so we find this going on in the church in Colossae, and we see that there are all of these different cultures there. They had a number of Jews, probably about 10,000 Jews apparently. They had Phrygians. Um, they were well known, Colossae, actually, for having an incredible wool textile industry. Um, I believe that some of their fame also came that they were the first people to make fridges and hence became known as the Phrygians. It's just, we're still looking for the archaeological evidence of that. We had the Greeks, we had the Romans, and all of the gods that came with that. And as I said, many people coming from the East with Eastern philosophies, etc. And so these false teachings were the kind of teachings that were invading the church all over the world. We see very quickly into the early church, like 30 years into the start of the church, false teachings and heresies coming into the church. The enemy knows if he can't get you to stop believing in Jesus, he will give you Jesus and, and try and get you to put Jesus in a place where you're not seeing who he truly is and what he truly did, and it starts to become all these other things. And so Colossians is written about 61, 62 AD to address the heresies of the time. And he writes it to counter some of these teachings. Now, the series that we're going to look at is looking at some of the lies, the heresies, the false teachings, and to see which ones of those are relevant today because the devil still uses the same tactics today as he did back then. And there are people who were teaching stuff back then that is still a primary belief today. In fact, one of them was Buddhism, which was in the kind of branched out of what was called Gnosticism. And so we're going to look at some of those false teachings, but we're not focusing on the false teaching. We're focusing on the truths that Paul used to address them. Because let me say something. Uh, can I say something, by the way? I have the mic, so let me say something. Here's kind of how we are meant to deal with heresy. In my early years as a Christian, I was, you know, I was kind of wanted to be the wisest, most knowledgeable teacher there was out there. And I read every book imaginable, and I knew my Bible backwards. I'm still learning to read it forwards, but I, it's coming. 
And I, I just, it was my goal to know everything. And I spent a lot of time studying up on false angels and false religions. I asked my wife. I had every book on every false religion you could imagine. I was out on campus apologetics. Man, if you were a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu, I had answers for everything. Seventh day, Jehovah's Witness, whatever. I could help you to see what was really Jesus, what wasn't. And, and I focused so much on the heresy that I realized I actually was spending more time on the false teaching than the true stuff and I've seen a lot of Christians go astray because they do that so we just need to understand the principles I don't encourage anyone to make it your goal to go and study every false teaching out there and you'll see why what we really want to focus on is the tree of truth now those of you who know that is a protea tree how many of you knew that I'm not barking up the wrong tree here that is truly that we're going to branch out into some thinking on this if you twig what I mean and so we're all buds together here today. So that over there is a parasite. Heresy never builds its own tree because you'd be able to see, oh, that's the wrong tree. What heresy does is it finds truth and it attaches itself to truth and then forms its own fruit that is not truth, but it sounds and looks like truth because it's attached to certain truths. Jesus, yes, but Jesus and. Or Yes, I believe in God, but, or I believe in the Bible, but I also believe in the verses of Murray White. Or I also believe in those and other scriptures that supersede what scripture has to say. And the parasites of heresy will hang on truth and make it look like it's all very, you know, true. But the fruit of it is always going to be disastrous. It's always going to lead you away from the truth of Jesus Christ. And the problem is that not all heresy looks bright red like that. It's not always as easy to spot. Some of them are like to blend in. And so there's the heresies of the Colossians. That's what they look like. We will see there, over there, you've got kind of, you see it's, it's syncretism, which is known as a mixture. That's very common in Christianity, uh, Christian sects and cults around. We will see there was Gnosticism, Judaism. There's Phrygian folklore over there. See what it looked like? Uh, mystery religions, astrology, New Age, uh, and all of that mixed with Christianity together in this church in Colossians. And so we see Paul addressing elements of these in what he writes to them. The problem is if we spend all our time just focusing on heresy is that a new false teaching is developed probably every five minutes around the world. And with the internet, man, you just could never keep up. So trying to study heresy is like trying to figure out all this. And eventually there's just so much, so much, so much that you can't see truth anymore. So we don't focus on the heresy. We focus on the answers to heresy. We focus on the tree of truth. Amen. So if you are just learning about Jesus, reading your Bible, getting to know the truth of all those principles, then that is enough. Amen? You reach in a Buddhist and you don't know anything about Buddhism, you don't have to. You just need to know Jesus and what He's done in your life. Amen? Would you agree? And so many try to fight heresy by identifying the heretical fruit, but, you know, never make the study of what is false a priority. In fact, here's the thing, the nature of virtually every heresy in Christian cults or sects is to challenge the true person and the true work of Jesus. So Paul writes, to kind of, when we have darkness, you don't shout at the darkness, describe the darkness, you turn the lights on. Paul writes this to turn the lights on and say, no, this is the true light. And anything else that has been said against it, well, that is obviously false. So we look in and zoom in to the real tree 
That is what it looks like. We examine who Jesus is. We examine what he looks like, what he feels like, what his fruit tastes like. And Colossians actually is called one of the best Christologies that Paul ever wrote. One of the best describers of Jesus Christ. Why? Because all of these false teachings were challenging the person and the work of Jesus. And Paul just comes and says, no, let me tell you who Jesus really is. So when we look at false teachings, I think it's important to know something about them. And so I'm going to just read you a very quick intro. I'm going to look at the Gnosticism and how Paul addresses Gnosticism in the church. And then we'll look at others over the next three weeks. But I'm just going to give you a quick background, read from a Christian historian. Gnosticism was perhaps the most dangerous heresy that threatened the early church during the first three centuries. Influenced by philosophers like Plato. Gnosticism is based on false premises. Dualism, which says matter, the seen realm, is evil and only spirit is good. They believed, therefore, the body was of no consequence, and you could just do what you liked with it. Sleep around, all the things your flesh wanted to do, hedonistic pleasures. And then they claimed to possess an elevated knowledge. Gnosis is a Greek word for knowledge, and this knowledge saved you. Not Jesus, but a knowledge of the mysteries. And when you had the special knowledge of the mysteries, you entered into the higher truth, which was the fullness. The reason I'm saying this is you'll see these words written in Colossians, where Paul says, let me tell you about the fullness. Let me tell you about true mysteries being revealed. And so they believed that you had to have, you could have Jesus, but you needed all of this other higher knowledge, which came from aeons or angels. And so there was like worship of angels. And so when we look at all of those, you can pull it apart. What Paul does is he says, let's look at Jesus. And Colossians is a compelling critical concepts concerning Christ and his creation to correct competing counter-Christian concepts, I guess. I just felt like I had to add to it after all those Vs. So I'm going to introduce this briefly today. We'll spend more time going through it. But I want to look at three compelling components of our Christian walk that will change the way you see Jesus and will allow you to see what is heresy and what is not. One of the greatest verses in Colossians is, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Ever heard that verse? One of the most quoted, famous verses. Well, I believe for us to embrace that, we need to see two other things on the same vein that Paul writes about in Colossians. And I believe the first thing we need to see is who Christ is in charge, the fullness of God's glory. Then we see Christ in me, the hope of God's glory. And we need to also understand that me and Christ is the whole gospel story. Amen. So I'm going to introduce these three today. And I want us to just kind of put your seatbelts on and I can only give headlines. Each of these could be a sermon, would you agree? Each of these could be a series. So we're just going to look at some components, but I believe God's going to change some of the ways that you think as we do this. So let's start with Christ in charge, the fullness of God's glory. This is what Paul really focuses on in Colossians. And I want to ask you, if you close your eyes today, you can do that. Would you just close your eyes? Picture Jesus. What picture do you get? For some of you, it's a picture of Jesus in the Jesus movie. It's, it's a man with a robe and a beard. Picture the resurrected Jesus at the right hand of God the Father. Some of us, I believe, still see Jesus as a man. You can look at me again. I'm a man. But Paul makes it very clear, Jesus is no longer just a man. 
And I believe it is vital for us to know who Jesus, the resurrected, glorified King of Kings in His kingdom truly is. He is greater, I believe, than what we could ever comprehend. And when we look at the nature and glory of Christ, Colossians writes a whole lot about it. And just kind of picture Paul introducing Christ like this movie, there is a hero, the hero is coming. Who is he? Well, I don't know who Christ is to you, but this is how Paul describes him. He is the creator of all things. Wow, doesn't that sound like the kind of hero you want in a movie? Through him and for him, everything was created. Heaven on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. That means if it went for Jesus, all things would fall apart. In everything, he has the supremacy. Not just the church, in everything. He is the fullness of God. He's not just someone sent by God, not just a good prophet, not just a good man. He is God and the fullness of God. And he came to reconcile all things and make you holy in his sight. He's God's son and the firstborn of all creation. Colossians talks about him as the redeemer being the very image of God. The head of the body, the church. And that Christ dwelling in you is the hope of glory. And that's just chapter 1. Chapter 2 and 3, I'm going to run through it quickly. He contains all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the standard by which all religious teaching is judged. He is the fullness of deity, God in bodily form. He's the head of every power and authority. He's the victor over all cosmic powers. I love the way Paul writes that, how he dealt with him. He is the reality and fulfillment of the Old Testament types and figures, regulations and laws because there were so many Jews who still wanted to cling to all of that. And Paul was saying to them, no, you don't have to anymore because Jesus has fulfilled all of those things. He's exalted and enthroned at the right hand of God in heaven and in Him we are complete. Our life is hidden, protected and kept. Doesn't that sound amazing? How many of you see Jesus like this, though? I, I mean, even preparing this, God has challenged some of the ways I see Jesus. He said, Andrew, your Jesus is too small. Doesn't that sound like someone you would want to follow? There were only two disciples left after the others were martyred, two apostles, to address the error that was around in the, in the 20 or so years after AD 70, and that was Paul and John. John, the apostle who loved Jesus the most, who wasn't afraid to die, who went with Jesus to the cross, was the only apostle who was never killed, although they tried to boil him in oil and came out with a nice-looking olive skin. They never could kill him. He was exiled to Patmos. And Paul had an experience where he was taken to heaven and saw Jesus. Both Paul and John, the last two who were there to address heresies, they both had the opportunity to see the risen, glorified Jesus. God allowed them to see him so that they, in their writings, after they had seen Jesus, would be able to give the church an answer to who Jesus really is. Would you like to see what John saw? John knew Jesus. He was familiar with him. He walked with him. And so when he thought of Jesus, he thought of Jesus as the man that he lived with. And John's encounter with the glorified Christ, he says he turns around and sees a voice. Uh, he saw a voice to see what the voice who was speaking and when i turned i saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man but he was dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash 
around his chest. You can all picture that, right? But then what he goes on, there's just no picture to describe it, so I just went for this. His hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. This was not the Jesus John was imagining in his mind every time he prayed to Jesus. God allowed him to see no, I'm not that anymore. And how do we know that this was too much for John and way beyond what he thought of Jesus because of his response? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Whoa. That's who we serve. That's who Jesus is. That's who you have living on the inside of you. You know, I make it a habit now when I pray to see Jesus in his glory. There are times when God, it, just the vision in my mind is so bright, it's like the brightness of the sun doesn't even come close in his presence. That is the real Jesus. And many of us just don't have that concept of God. I want to close this point by just encouraging you to do this. Do everything that you can from this day to renew your mind about who Christ really is now. The resurrected, glorified King of Kings, Lord of Lords, name above all names. Glory that shines like the sun. The, the one that has been made supreme authority over everything in whose presence we would probably fall like dead men if we saw him. And then Paul says, this Christ that I'm describing to you, because every other false religion doesn't describe him like this. He created everything. Everything was created in him, through him, for him, by him. And then Paul says, this Christ lives in you. In Colossians 1.27, he addresses this mystery. And he says, guys, you want to chase after the mystery? Here's the only mystery you need to know, and it's been revealed. That God has chosen to make known amongst the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery that is Christ in you. The hope of glory. The old covenant didn't understand this. How could God live in a person? They had to understand the tabernacle and the temple. Then the mystery was the prophetic words that said, but you will be the temple. The mystery is now revealed in the fullness of Jesus saying, you, each one of you is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus who is the glorified, risen, most powerful, name above all names, authority above every authority, lives in you. You should every time you wake up and look inside go, whoa. Do it again. Whoa. That's how it should be. When he talks about Christ dwelling in us, let me ask you this. When we get to heaven, will Jesus need to dwell in us? No, we'll be in his presence. Jesus Christ dwelling in you is for the here and now, this world. And so many people think that glory is a place we go when we die. When I die and get glory. You've all heard the songs. Now you see, here's the hope. Is that if you really embrace who Christ is in you, 
the hope is that you will start to reflect, release, and redeem through the glory that comes out of you because of that. He is the hope of glory being released on the earth when every one of you starts to embrace his nature and release his personality. What is the glory of God? Let me just give you a definition of what I believe is the glory of God. It's not a place you go. It is the nature. It is the presence. It is the power. It is the personality and the love that God has that changes everything that it comes into contact with. And if we release this, then there's hope for glory on the earth. Amen. You know, when the Bible speaks about in Habakkuk that His glory will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea, that's not like we're waiting for that day when and it all shines. No, it's today because His glory is in every one of us. And us covering the earth and every place you go, releasing His glory, every place you put your foot, that is the hope of glory covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. The Gnostics taught that this kind of dualistic mentality that God's not interested in the secular. God's not interested in the seen realm, only the unseen. No, Colossians makes it very clear. It's all Jesus. And it tells us that the creation is groaning, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Everything around us is wanting us to release Jesus into it. Rick Richardson, a great description of the gospel. He says this, when Jesus announced the good news of the kingdom... Describing it like this, the inbreaking and dynamic transforming rule of God to set all things right. Ain't that a good description of the good news? But he wasn't primarily talking about what would happen after people died. He's talking about the here and now. Christ in us, the hope of glory is for the here and now. And it's not just for church. It's where you go tomorrow. It's for the workplace. It is for creation, how you look after your garden, how you look after your dogs. I believe it all matters. Amen. And so we really, we need to, as a church, break this mindset and recognize that it's all God's. It all was made for Him. It is all redeemed. And therefore, we are to release the redemption of Jesus to everything we touch and everywhere we go. We need to destroy the demonic deception of dualism by slaying Satan's schemes of the sacred secular separation. As to Colossians, Paul makes it clear, it's all God's, He created it all, He's Lord of all, He redeemed it all, and He wants us to release His glory everywhere. There is no difference between the spiritual realm and the natural realm, the seen and the unseen, it's all His, and we meant to live in both and bridge both. Abraham Kaper, who was a Dutch theologian and, and a minister in Parliament, he says there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine it's all his that's why he taught us to pray your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven the hope of glory is you living in heaven living in jesus embracing his nature becoming more like him and releasing his glory everywhere you go that is it amen and then the last point i want to make today Christ is in charge. He is everything. He is the fullness. Gnostics talked about, oh, we need to find this mystery so we can reach the fullness. No, Jesus is the fullness. That Christ dwells in you so that he can release his glory through you wherever you go. But then there is a teaching that says, but you have to do all of these things to be right. You have to do all of these things to be pure. Just like Portia was sharing, it was, no, Christians are holy and I'm not holy. How many of you here today 
are living just like Jesus. I want to meet you. It's a journey. But the whole gospel story is not about what you do to be righteous. It's what Jesus has already done. And Colossians, he says, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's body through death to present you what? Holy in his sight. He doesn't say you're holy when you complete all this list of do's and don'ts. Paul challenges the, the Jewish thinkers. It's not about keeping the law. It's about being in Jesus. Sin had to be paid for. God is righteous. God is just. Our sin had to be paid for. That's why Jesus came. He died on the cross. His physical body died on the cross as payment for all of our sin. So if I hide myself in him through that act, then I'm not only holy in his sight, but he says without blemish and free from accusation. Do you know what the word Satan means? It literally means accuser. A lot of false teaching is an accusation against who you are and what you should be and what you should be doing. And it just puts pressure on you. And a lot of you, before you came to church, they had all the accusations of the enemy telling you, you're not good enough. If they really knew what you were like. God shows me every Sunday, every person sins in this church. No, he doesn't. <laughs> Because in his sight, it's not there. You see, when he looks at you, he looks at Jesus and he says, you're in Jesus. Okay, you're just like Jesus. You're in Jesus. Chris Vallotton talks about it like, you know, the Trojan horse that the Greeks used to get into. Where did they get it? Troy, thank you. He says it's like that Trojan horse. We could never get in ourselves. It is 245. There is no way we can bridge the gap between us and God. So Jesus says, hey. Just get in me. And we all get inside Jesus and he rolls us in. You're in Jesus, so therefore you're holy. He says, in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. In him, you were circumcised with the circumcision, not by human hands. We learned, Carol taught last week about, Paul said, if you now feel like you have to be circumcised, you're violating what Jesus did for you. Because the circumcision of Jesus is the circumcision of the heart. He now takes away the fleshly part of our heart and kills it. So your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. And here's the punchline. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So me in Christ means that my fleshly part died. Might manifest and try and do stuff now and then. But that's not who I am in Jesus. A lot of the law and what the things you have to do and, you know, it's not enough. The, the false teaching comes out of this sense that the gospel is too good to be true. I must have to do more. How can it be that God just suddenly made me holy and pure and no blemish and free from accusation? And no, it can't be. I must do more. Don't get sanctification and justification confused. The moment you get in Jesus, you are justified. And if you don't know what justified means, just say it like this, just as if I'd never sinned. That's how God sees you. You don't come and say, God, I'm sorry, I did this. Where do you see in the Lord's Prayer? When you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I come before your throne of grace and throw myself upon my face. I am, O oh Lord, just but a worm. So step on me and watch me squirm. How many of you, that's your opening line? 
Stop it. You're in Christ. You can step right in boldly before the throne because he's your high priest. You can just, hey, dad, how's it? Hey, son. And when he sees you, he sees all the good he created you to do. And he doesn't want to talk about the other stuff. Amen. We're justified. Now the work of sanctification is an ongoing process. So me and Christ, it's all done. You're going to heaven. Everything's made right. But Christ in you demands that I become more sanctified. That day by day I'm becoming more like Him. But me becoming more like Him, I'm on this journey. It's, it's the direction I'm going and it's not how far or close I am. That's what Colossians is full of, have patience with those who are still on the journey. Colossians is full of, bear with those <laughs> who still are not like Jesus in the process. That's sanctification, but that doesn't change who you are in God. It doesn't change His grace, His mercy, His love, your righteousness, your holiness in His sight. It doesn't make Him love you any more or less. All it means is that I become a greater vessel to reflect and reveal His glory the more I become like Jesus. And so that is why my goal is to become more like Jesus. Amen? And Paul talks about becoming more like Jesus and allowing him to live out his greatness in our lives and he closes by saying some interesting things in chapter three i'm just going to throw just an understanding of how he says how then should we live if this is the jesus we're talking about he dwells in you and you are hidden in him then he says take off that old self with all its practices and put on the new it's like changing clothes some of you ladies did it six times this morning it's that simple. No, I choose to not be that anymore. I just take it off and put on the new self. And he says, once you live in Christ, there's no Gentile, no Jew, no black, no white, no colored, no woman, no man. In Christ, we're all the same. If the church truly lived this, there would be no racism, no prejudice. We have got to show the world a picture of glory that you see around you that you don't see in churches meeting today. Look around you. How, how many churches meeting around the world today do you think look like this? No, seriously, look around you. This is only because of Christ in us. Overtaking our experiences, our flesh, all these other lies. And he says, you are dearly loved over all of these virtues. Over everything I've taught, there's one thing you must walk in. You must put on the love of God, which binds all of these things together in perfect unity. You see, we can have all of this right, but unless we walk in love, then we actually don't represent the fullness of His glory, because the fullness of who God is, is love. And so any teaching that doesn't have the love of God, it isn't us expressing love in everything we do, is not releasing the fullness of His glory. I want to play a one-minute clip, it's one minute, by Brennan Manning, who I believe sums this up with such anointing that I could say the same things that wouldn't carry the same anointing. So, are you guys ready for me back there? Are you all ready for a one-minute video? There's no time for Coke and popcorn. Do you see why it is so important? to lay hold of this basic truth of our faith because you're only going to be as big as your own concept of God. 
Remember the famous line of the French philosopher, Grace Blaise Pascal? God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. We often make God in our own image, and he winds up to be as fussy, rude, narrow-minded, legalistic, judgmental, unforgiving, unloving as we are. In the past couple of three years, I have preached the gospel to the financial community in Wall Street, New York City, the airmen and women of the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, a thousand physicians in Nairobi. I've been in churches in Bangor, Maine, Miami, Chicago, St. Louis, Seattle, San Diego, and honest, the God of so many Christians I meet is a God who is too small for me because he is not the God of the Word. He is not the God revealed by and in Jesus Christ who this moment comes right to your seat and says, I have a word for you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin, shame, dishonesty, and degraded love that has darkened your past. Right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship. And my word is this. I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are and not as you should be, because you're never going to be as you should be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, King of kings, name above all names, brightest, most glorious God that we could not even picture in our human minds. I ask for your glory, your power, your grace, your anointing and presence to break through our minds and shatter every misconception we have. Every false belief that the enemy has sown. And I pray for every person here that you would release a grace to know you like never before. And if you're here today and you have not recognized Christ as Lord of everything, you're not in Christ. It's the only way you can get saved. It's the only way. But if you're here today and you're not in Christ, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Because it's as simple as saying, today I choose Jesus to accept the work of the cross. And I ask you to fill me and save me and set me free, redeem me, make me holy. And that's it. And if you have not done that, then I want to pray for you. And If that's you, please raise your hand. I want to pray for you now. I don't want you to leave without making right with God. And if you know you need to, just raise your hand. Raise it up high so I can see. God bless you. God bless you. Who else today? Anyone else? Thank you, Jesus. Can we pray this prayer together with that gentleman who raised his hand? And just say, Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that you are the only way. You created me. You know what's best for me. And I repent for living life my way. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn my back on my way and I embrace your way. I embrace the work you did on the cross. And I say, Jesus, would you be Lord of my life from this day onwards? I declare now that I give my life to you. Give me the grace 
to live it for you. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Father.